once again, I uh, recognize that I, f- I forgot to say Happy Father's Day to all of you when I said good morning this morning. So Happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. And I like Justin's um, prayer this morning as uh, we have the opportunity to open up the word from the best father that we could ever have. So if you're able, please rise as we continue our walk through the book of James. We'll be completing chapter four this week. And um, uh, prepare our hearts now to hear the reading of God's word. This is what it says to us this morning. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So far the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, our Savior, our King, our strong tower, our rock, and our refuge. We thank you that you've given us this word today. Lord, I pray that you would carry my words to these folks gathered here in this room this morning or through technology today or tomorrow or sometime in the future, that you would take those words and mold and shape lives, not because of who I am or the skills that I have or don't have, but because you are our great God and you have given us your word, so you are the one that molds and shapes lives. So hold fast to that promise. Be near to us now in this moment, in this hour. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You may be seated. James is an interesting book, and I think we have uh, come to understand that pretty well over the course of the last few weeks that we've been walking through this. And there's all kinds of questions and thoughts and perceptions that we have as we enter into James. And this week is no different. And this is a little bit of an odd text, a little bit of a strange text. And one that almost appears is kind of out of nowhere. And I thought about this text quite a bit this week, obviously, and I read lots of commentaries and I did lots of study and, and all of these things, and none of them seemed to really answer the question that I was asking of Scripture, or at least a question that I was thinking about as I was looking at this. And that's not to say that I'm right or they're right or I'm wrong or they're wrong, it's just I'm going to give you what's on my heart as to what I see coming out of James chapter 4. And the first thing that jumps off the page to me this week is a question that, that I, I think I've asked you all a number of times, not necessarily here in James, but over my time here as your pastor. The question is this, who are you? Who are you? And we live in a world today, don't we, that's asking this question a lot. Who are you? Does it depend on what color you vote? Does it depend on what color your skin is? Who are you? Or maybe even what are your pronouns? Can we even dare ask those questions in church? It's a question that's out in the world today. So what do we do with this? Who who are you? What makes you you? Who are you? So we can't pretend these questions aren't out in the world today, and even the, the touchy ones, the sensitive ones, the ones that we don't really like to answer all that quickly, 
they're out there. They're in our world. And we run into them when we turn on our televisions, open up our computers, flip through our phones. These are the questions that are before us all the time. They're talked about in our family rooms, in our kitchens, in our sanctuaries, in our bedrooms, in our living rooms. But we're not the first generation to ask these questions. It may feel that way, but we're not. These questions have been asked by every generation throughout the history of humanity. But then when we ask that question, what are we really getting at? No matter what the question is or how we answer that question, who are you, who am I, what really is at the heart of asking that question? And it really is a matter of identity, isn't it? What makes me me? How do I identify myself? And there's so much confusion to that question that the answer is often shrouded in a barrage of contemporary slang and a bunch of words that we can't really begin to fathom and we're just confused by them all. But then James cuts right through all of that nonsense, doesn't he? He cuts right through the center of all that and asks the hard questions. He asks the questions that we really want the answers to. James asked the identity question in perhaps a bit more poignant and and pointed way than even I have this morning. What does he say in verse 14? He says, what is your life? What is your life? But before he asked that question, he asked another question in verse 13. What are you boasting in? He then answers the question for us in verse 15 by telling us, what it is that we are to believe in. And it appears to me then that James is getting more at the heart of who we are rather than what we are. He's pointing at our hearts and he's entering into this conversation not so much about what our actions are, but rather what is our motivation, what is our emotion, what is our heart posture. And so then we enter into James with the expectation that we will answer this question, how? Not what? how we are to live our lives. But what really James is after in this letter is to, as he writes to newly converted Jewish Christians, that there's faith is not a matter of, of what. The faith is not a matter of what, but rather of who. Who do you trust more? Do you trust yourself? Or do you trust God? That's at the heart of these few short verses. Who do you trust more, yourself or God? And then depending on how you answer that question, honestly, how you depend and how you answer that question honestly depends and shapes how we then live our lives. It goes a really long way in answering the question then, who are you? Who do you trust more, really answers the question, who are you? And so then this, this then is at the heart of this section of James. Who are you really trusting? And this is where life gets hard. We get confused by that. And we get frustrated by that. We get confused and frustrated when we have to trust and put our faith into something other than me ourselves, because we want to trust ourselves more than anything. 
We want to trust our intelligence. We want to trust our instincts. We want to trust our plans, our strategies, our experience. And this then is what guides us and directs us into how we live our lives. Because really, we just don't want to get hurt again. We want to make sure everything is padded and nice and comfortable. And so we don't want conflict. We don't want pain. We want things to be straight and we want things to not have problems. We don't want heartache or headache. We want to put things in place. We want to put things in order so that we can have control over our futures and sometimes even over our pasts. We want to try to make sense of life. And so we dig into ourselves and we trust who we are. And what James is approaching here and over the course of the next few verses is, where is it that you're placing your trust? Are we placing our trust in wealth, in security, in plans, in strategies, in how we set our course for the next few hours, days, weeks, months, years? He's not saying that wealth is bad. He's not saying that planning is bad. He's not saying that at all. But he is challenging our hearts, and he's challenging our attitudes as we pursue some of these things. All the while asking the question, who are you? What is your identity? So how is it then that James is going about doing this heart surgery that he's been doing so well over the past few weeks for James has been meddling a little bit, hasn't he? He's, he's, he's been stirring our hearts and our lives quite a bit as of late. He's challenged us to understand that our faith is born out of the gospel. And our works are born out of faith. And the challenge that's before us today is just as piercing, just as surgical as it ever has been. And so as we begin to answer the question, who are you, James provides us then with a matrix to answer that question. He gives us a warning. He gives us some instruction. And then he gives us an exhortation. So let's examine those few things this morning as we look at these few short verses from James chapter 4. So we are planners, aren't we? We like to plan. We like things in order. It's in our nature to plan. Why wouldn't we plan? Even those who say we don't like to have plans, when it really comes down to it, it's a whole lot easier to have a plan. Trust me on that one. Some of us are more strict in following plans than others. Some tend to be a bit more loose with plans. But we all like a plan. Where are we going? How are we going to get there? We like it. Plans then are interesting things, aren't they? Because once we make plans and they work, then we begin to have more and more confidence in our ability to make plans, and we have more and more confidence in those plans to make sure that life is straight, and there's no heartache, there's no pain, there's no headache, and everything is padded and nice because we have a plan. But then something happens when things don't go according to plan, then we have heartache and pain and all these things. So what do we do with all of this? This is exactly what James is getting at here in these few short verses as he addresses this particular audience that's wrestling with all of this. He says in verse 13, he says, Come now, 
Come now you who say today or tomorrow will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. James is actually warning and reprimanding the audience that he's preaching to, therefore warning and reprimanding us as well. Perhaps he's warning businessmen or merchants. We're not quite sure, but it is stated very broadly and boldly so as to include virtually everybody who likes to make plans. But anyone who does what exactly is he talking about? Five things, James tells us, that he warns us about. Five things. What are those five things? And we're just going to list them off here. First, he warns that they plan to set on a trip today or tomorrow. He says, today or tomorrow, we will go. Right? That's the first thing he warns us about. Secondly, they plan to arrive at a destination. Well, that makes sense, right? If you plan to go somewhere and you set out, then you probably have a destination. Today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city. That's the second thing. Third, they plan to spend a certain amount of time there. Sounds like a pretty good plan so far, right? You, you, you have a goal, you have a destination, and then when you get to your destination, how long are we going to be there? Today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such and a city and spend a year there. Seems like a pretty logical, good plan. The fourth thing he warns them about is this. They plan to engage in business and carry through a plan of action while they are in the city. So today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city and we'll spend a year there and then we'll engage in business. Sounds like a good plan. The fifth thing, they plan for the business to have certain results. Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, and engage in business and make a profit. Great. Sounds like a good plan. Let's do it. So what's the problem? What's wrong with that plan? Why is he warning them in these few verses? There must be a proper perspective in how we go about planning. That's the problem. That's the warning. That's the warning that he gives to them and he gives to us. He warns these people and he warns us about a heart condition. A heart condition worse than a heart attack, worse than a heart disease, or any other deadly ailment. The warning that he gives as we set out on these plans is a boastful arrogance. It's not a matter of the plan. The plan's a good plan. He's not criticizing the plan, nor should we. It's criticizing the motivation and the hearts of the planner. He's criticizing the, the, the prideful boasting of the plan. Our pride is a dangerous deceiver of our hearts, isn't it? And James warns us to be careful in our boasting and have a proper perspective of who we actually are and, and what we actually are. You see, this section of Scripture is aiming for one of the most diseased areas of our lives. It's aiming at our desire for control and for us to be praised for our control. What a tempting elixir that is. Control and pride, which then leads to boasting. Maybe one or two of you know a thing or two about that. I can attest it is a very tempting elixir, one that we've all drunk many times over. I want to be in control, and I want people to tell me that I'm great doing it. 
But like any elixir, there is a euphoria, and it lasts for just a short time. The high lasts for only a moment and quickly fades, and often what's left behind is hurt, headaches, difficulty. This, then, is the warning of boasting that James gives us. This is where the instruction begins. Check your heart. Check your motivation. Check yourself. He tells us to realize, as he asks us to check ourselves, just like this tempting elixir of boasting quickly fades, so too do we. What is your life? It's but a mist or a vapor, as other translations say. You're here one moment and gone the next. Therefore, where or what or who are you rooted in? Yourself? Your plans? Your God? Your control? Your pride? You see, things change and life changes. We change and change with life, and in the perspective of eternity, we're but a mist or a vapor. So what? Some may say, so what? What difference does it make if my life is but a vapor? That, that may be all the more reason to plan, right? If, if my life is short and I'm just a mist here, that means I have to take advantage of today and I have to plan it out and I have to make sure everything is right and good and in line. That's a, that's a very easy path to go down. I, if, if my life, I don't know what tomorrow brings, then all the more reason to have a really good plan and to make sure that I have everything in control. I don't think Scripture is telling us to stop planning. It's not what it's saying. Scripture is not telling us to go in our houses and live as hermits and, and never have anything to do with the world or not to engage with anybody. It's not what it's saying at all. That's, that's clearly not what's being communicated here. The warning is about our attitudes, our lives, our motivations, our understanding of what life really is all about. And it gives us just a quick reminder of the brevity of life. We are but a mist. We are but a vapor. So then the instruction then is in that regard. For many of us, that's not instruction, but rather that's disheartening and frustrating and frightening and scary. We don't like to think of our mortality, do we? We don't like to think perhaps of the insignificance we may have in the history of the world because we want to be remembered. We want our lives to mean something. We want to leave a legacy for our kids, our grandkids, our friends. We want people to talk about us. We want people to remember us. Now, many of us would not necessarily put those words out, but we want our lives to matter. And we want to have some kind of significance in this world. Or perhaps some of us would say that the fact that we are just a vapor doesn't really mean anything at all. It doesn't have any significance on how my life goes. I'm still going to make my plans. I'm still going to go to work and, and work hard and, and be the best version of me that I possibly can be, right? That's a, another popular saying, be the best version of you today. 
So the fact that life is short, that's fine. It's, it's relative anyway because it's my life, the only life I have to live. So then what's the point of all of this? Why, why does James go through all of this stuff to say to us somewhat of an insulting thing? Your life is but a mist, a vapor. You're here one moment and gone the next. Why does all of this matter? Why even say something like this, James? Are you trying to offend me? Are you trying to make me angry? It matters for this reason. Because God created us not just to do things and to go places. He created us not just to do things and go places and make money and go about life. He created us not just to go and do things and go places and make monies with our bodies, but also to have certain attitudes and emotions and understandings. We're more than just what we do. We're also what we think. We are our emotions. We are created in totality of how God wants us to be. And so it's not just the things and the places that we go and the things and the places that we hope to go or the things that we do. But it's about all of us. It's about our whole entire being. And so a true view of life and of God has some type of impact in how we make these plans and how we make our decision. God's means for truth about himself to be known and about life to be known and to be felt and to be spoken about as part of our reason for being. Not just to make plans and to make money and to go about the day in and the day out things of life. We're not created just to go to Dallas and make money. You were made to go to Dallas with thoughts and attitudes and words and emotions and understandings. We're meant to go to Dallas to glorify God in all that we do. We're meant to go there with words that reflect a loving and kind God. Not to be judgmental and harsh, but to be gracious and merciful and reflect the love of Jesus Christ to our coworkers and to our friends and our family and our classmates. It's all of that. Verse 15 tells us the true view of God, doesn't it? The true view of God that we should have in our minds and in our mouths as we plot out our future and as we make our plans. But before that, verse 13 begins this way. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will to go in such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Then he tells us what's wrong with that way of talking. He says in verse 15, indeed, you ought to say something different. So here's the instruction. We have this plan, but really what he wants us to say is something on top of that plan. If the Lord wills, we will live and do all of these things. If the Lord wills, then I will go to Dallas and I will spend some time there and I will make some money there and then I will be able to have, if the Lord wills. So he's saying the plan is great. But over the top of that is the will of the Lord. Over the top of that is how God is sovereign and how he instructs and how he sets things out in his economy in life. So in other words, it not only matters that you have a right view of life when you make your plans, because you're a vapor or a mist, but it also matters that you have a right view of God as you make your plans. 
And that then gives you the expression of the true view of God. We ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. So what's the right view of God that he teaches us to have in verse 15? If the Lord wills, we will live. And the other is contained in the words, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. One commentator puts it this way, and I'm just going to read a quote here for a second. In Acts 18.21, Paul left Ephesus, and he said, I will return to you again if God wills. And then again in 1 Corinthians 4.19, Paul writes, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. For most of his life, he did not know if the next town might be his burial place. That was in the hands of God. And so are our lives. God will decide how long we live and where we die. And James's point then is God means for that truth, that reality, to shape our mindset and our attitude and our words. He means for that truth to be known and spoken about. He means for it to be a part of the substance of our conversation. God means for a true view of himself to be known and believed and embraced and cherished and kept in mind and spoken of. The instruction then is given to us if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, we will go here and we will do this. Friends, it's here where we need to pause for a second. We need to take a moment and understand the weight of what lies before us in this text. We have to approach the heart of this matter with our eyes wide open. Therefore, I do not desire to understate or overstate what I'm about to say to you. So hear these words, brothers and sisters. No matter what happens in the next few moments, the next few hours, the next few days, the next few weeks, months, or years, whether you live or whether you die, if the Lord wills, you will live. If the Lord wills, you will die. You see then, our lives are completely in the hands of the Lord God Almighty. Our lives are in the hands of a sovereign God, a righteous God, a holy God. It is His will that governs and directs all of our plans, all of our paths. It is His will that the flowers grow. And when it's 117 heat index this week, the flowers fade. It is His will and His plan. It's His will that spring turns to summer and summer turns to fall and fall turns to winter and winter turns to spring all over again. And He is faithful. It is His will that we continue in His will. It is this faithful God of the universe, and he has always been, and he always will be, and he's anything but a vapor. He's from eternity past and to eternity to end. And so the comfort in all of this is that he has determined to love you and love me, to care for you and to care for me. And we're not just a mist. We're not just a vapor. We have tremendous value in the eyes of the Lord our God. So much value as a matter of fact that he entered into this vapor. 
by taking on flesh. He has experienced all of our temptations. He's been scared. He's been tired. He's been hungry. And he's been tempted. And in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, he has borne our sufferings. He's borne our temptations. And he's taken all of that iniquity upon himself and set us free from this sin and death and misery. So then we return to the question that we started off with. Who are you? Are you defined by your plans and your strategies? Are you defined by yourself and who you think you are? Who are you? My friends, you are more loved than you dare to imagine. You are more precious in the eyes of the Lord God Almighty than you can ever dare dream. How do I know this? Because we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you are not your own. Who are you? You are not your own. But you are bought with a price. You were bought with the price of the life and death of Jesus Christ. You were bought with a cross. You were bought with nails. You were bought with a grave. And that is a steep price, a price that the Lord was willing to pay because of his love for you, because he cares for you. He entered into your stuff and my mess. And he says, this is how much I love you. You see, the price is then life and death and the resurrection of Jesus. Why? In order that we would grasp how wide and how deep and how high is the love of Christ. And this love, Paul says to them in Ephesians, it surpasses all of our knowledge. We will never come to understand the depths and the heights and the width of this kind of love. So who are you? You are the Lord's bought with the price of Jesus Christ that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness. And because of this grace that we have in Jesus, we're able to boast. Therefore, as it says in Jeremiah and in other places, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. If you're going to boast today, boast in what the Lord has accomplished to you. Friends, we boast not in ourselves, not in our plans, but rather in the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord God Almighty, the Lord who wills all things, who governs all things, including you and including me and including tomorrow, this week, next month, next year. And so then it's with confidence, with this type of working faith, that we're able to trust in the Lord in all things. Because if the Lord wills, we will go to such and such a place. If the Lord wills, we will go here. And so let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So to him be all glory and honor and praise from this day and every day. Amen. Let's pray.
O Lord, our God, how gracious and wonderful you are to us. As we approach this table, may we have a real and true and right understanding of the heights, the depths, and the wits that you have gone to call us yours. And so, Lord, may we boast in this table that you sacrificed yourself to show us your grace and love and mercy. So may this not be just another meal that we do on Sunday, just some little small piece of bread and a little cup of juice or wine. But, Lord, fill us. Nourish us with the understanding of your grace and love. So, Lord, help us to trust in your will. Help us to trust in how you lead and guide us. Help us to put our faith in who you are, not in our plans, not in our strategies, but that you are a sovereign God, a God who loves and cares. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who lives and reigns forever. Amen.